This is TSFPN.com, the Sci-Fi Podcast Network. You found the best podcast in the universe. It's Monday, the 4th of December, and you're listening to The Secrets. Welcome to this podcast of The Secrets, the podcast for anyone who is serious about writing. The Secrets home can be found at www.stormwolf.com. For the next 15 minutes, we'll talk about writing and how to get you even closer to seeing your name on the spine of a book. Welcome to this 12th special edition of The Secrets. I probably ought to stop calling these special editions, or not. Oh, and just so you know, with the holidays hitting and my writing schedule tightening up, I may not hit a show a week, but then I'm telling you guys about how you can become writers too, so just bear in mind, occasionally you actually have to write. I'll do my best to get more shows out, but, you know, I do have to pay the rent. I'm Michael A. Stackpole, a science fiction and fantasy novelist, an editor, a game and computer game designer, and podcaster, who at this point has done most of his holiday shopping. I've had 38 books published, and eight of those books have hit the New York Times bestseller list. Perchance to Dream is my latest book and makes a wonderful holiday present. It's a collection of short stories, including a previously unpublished story set in the world of the Dragon Crown War fantasy novel series. So uh, look for it, and if you go to my website, you can find it there. The Secrets Podcast is an audio companion to my writing newsletter, which is also called The Secrets. You can learn more about the newsletter on my webpage at www.stormwolf.com. Download sample issues, decide if it's worth a dollar an issue to focus your writing on success. Back issues are also available, and the Hurricane Katrina relief package is still running, and I put the code back in to make sure that that would still work. Thanks for letting me know that it wasn't there. This episode of The Secrets is going to be a little bit lighter, at least that's my intention. I'd originally intended to concentrate on publicity, but some other ideas kind of crept in, so I'm calling this episode Things That Will Drive You Nuts. In this case, the you refers to a writer who has work sitting out there in the market. When we sell a story or a novel, we really do hope folks will like it, and thus begins a love-hate relationship with a portion of our audience, and that is the portion which is vocal, and the minority, but they're vocal, so you have to pay attention to them. Please, don't interpret any part of this episode as a rant against what readers do and say. It would be quite hypocritical of any writer to criticize people for expressing opinions. I mean, that's what I get paid to do. Just because someone is willing to do it for free, and just because they might say something I don't like about my work, doesn't mean they're wrong. Well, actually, in my case, they are wrong, but in their own way, they're also right. Criticism and comments by reviewers and readers will definitely, definitely, definitely drive a writer insane. Not so much because of what is said, but how it's said. For example, Locust Magazine ran a review of my novel, Once a Hero. In that novel, the chapters are paired. One is present time, the other is 500 years in the past. The eras depicted are quite different. The reviewer commented that they were not different enough because, in his mind, one only had to look at the world today, our world, and then look at it in the day of Christopher Columbus, which was 500 years ago. He inferred that I, as the author, had to be as dense as depleted uranium to have missed the obvious point in my book that we are so different than we were 500 years ago. Needless to say, this uh, torqued me off. My college degree is actually in history. Moreover, I'd modeled the differences in the world based on the European Dark Ages and the Renaissance, another 500-year gap. 
This is something the reviewer might have picked up on if he had, say, compared weapons technology in both eras, or the use of military tactics, or the style of urban architecture in either era, and so on. Because of his ignorance, I'm made out to be an idiot, when in fact the dunce cap should have remained lodged firmly on his head. So the obvious question is, what can you do about that? I could have called up the editor and denounced the guy. I could have written a letter to the magazine. I could have posted a screed on my website. Oh, wait, websites didn't exist back then. I could have found the guy at a convention, dressed him down in public, and challenged him to a duel. And that actually would have been fun. What did I do? Absolutely nothing. Manly Wade Wellman, a great writer and a greater gentleman, once said in a letter about such individuals that, quote, neither they nor their work is immortal, unquote. Good advice. I've quite forgotten who the guy was, and I've not seen his review as being quoted lately. The internet has changed reviewing rather radically. I know authors who live and die by their Amazon rankings and the reviews that get posted. I'll admit that curiosity and ego do prompt me to read the things, and I really try not to get upset by negative reviews. Okay, operative word there is try. Uh, sometimes it's a couple of hours before the homicidal fantasies calm down. And that's actually good, because if I didn't care, I'd not be invested in the work, and that would suck. You could tell by reading it that I just was phoning it in. I recently looked at the reviews for my novel, A Secret Atlas, and those reviews are a good example of why reviews can be valuable. Most of the reviews are good, and I certainly like that, but a number of them are critical. For example, one guy liked the book until he realized it wasn't a standalone novel, but the first in a series. He notes in his review that there is nothing in the book to indicate it's part of a series. Unless you actually look at the title page, which says, Book One of the Age of Discovery. And Book Two comes out in March, hint, hint. So uh, look for it. It's called Cartomancy. It's great. The other reviews are equally interesting. Some folks think the first hundred pages rock, but the ending is rushed and incomplete. Other people think the book starts incredibly slow but ends with a bang. Some folks think the world is shallow and insufficiently developed. Others think it's a rich world worthy of an epic. And yet others think it is, once again, a triumph of my talent. And yet others think I should actually get back to doing good books. So what's a writer supposed to make of all this? Well, the first thing is that at least eight people bought the book and felt strongly enough about it to post a review. That does count for something. More importantly, it points out that books will strike different people in entirely different ways, and it's the same book. Moreover, readers are not always terribly observant. I don't want to pick on the guy who didn't notice it was part of a series because he didn't read the title page. I bet he did. I bet he just glossed over the fact that it was part of a series. These things happen. Readers bring their lives and experiences to each story. I've been listening to a college lecture on the Iliad, and the professor said that every time she rereads the Iliad, she finds something different in it, and she expects that to continue for as long as she lives. Is this because the Iliad changes? Nope. It's been fairly standardized for the past 2,200 years. It's because the person reading the book changes, and that that's the stresses in their life change. If your life is chaotic, you might not get into a book and put it down, thinking it's bad. After the stress is gone, you give it another try, and bang, it's great. The book has not changed. The reader has. And authors have no control over readers. And that will drive you insane. Okay, I'm going to let you in on a secret, but if you read the one word of this to anybody else, 
I'm in trouble. I've got one book. It's called An Enemy Reborn, where I'm credited as writing with a co-author. I designed the world the novel is set in, and uh, its companion novel, A Hero Born, was one that I wrote. I wrote that one all by myself, and my co-author did the first version of Reborn. The books were orphaned at one publisher, and the new publisher wanted them rewritten and expanded. I agreed to do it for both books because my co-author didn't have the time. I added a new character to the first novel, and I carried her and a few others into Reborn. For a variety of reasons, I ended up writing An Enemy Reborn from top to bottom. But the only thing I used from the first version was a character's name, a couple of situations, and a vague sense of the original plot. In other words, that book is, word for word, all mine. When you look at the Amazon reviews, however, readers perceive a difference in style between sections. They hate the sections they think were written by my co-author, but they love what I did. They even suggest my co-author clearly didn't understand the world, and yet I was my own co-author. So, as you can see, even the perception that a favorite author has done something will make it better in the eyes of some readers. It's a curious phenomena and clearly indicative that no matter what attempts someone makes to offer a totally unbiased view of something, unconscious biases can always slip in there. The important thing to remember about reviews is this. They are opinions. Some writers soar to heights when someone says something good and crash emotionally when they hear something bad. Doing that will get you some scripts for serious medicine. Now you can't take credit for the good reviews and dismiss the bad. If you want to own one, you can't break up a pair. You own them both. Better to look at them and ask yourself if any specific points are valid and consider whether or not you need to modify things in the future. Letting reactions to reviews rule you is just nuts. Oh yeah, there's one more very special subcategory of that sort of thing which drives every writer absolutely up a wall. This is when someone says, I loved your latest book, but I really think your best work was dot dot dot. That sentence always ends badly. Whether they cite someone else's book, which embarrasses both of you, or they hearken back to some book you wrote 16 years ago. Now, if a writer hasn't gotten any better in 16 years, he's just not trying. And that sort of statement vexes a lot of writers. As I noted before, however, what a reader is really saying is that the book he mentioned was the book that really hit him where he lived at that time in his life. And when you think about that, that's a very cool thing. No matter what was going on in his life at the time, your work really spoke to him. Maybe it gave him a life insight. Maybe it just let him chill out during a really difficult time. Maybe it gave him perspective on something. Whatever it was, it had enough impact on the reader that he remembers it 10, 15 years later. How often does that happen? I mean, how cool is that? It's very cool. This side of actually saving someone's life, it doesn't get any cooler. Another thing that writers deal with is publicity, or for most of us, the utter lack of it. While we all hear of authors going off on book tours, or hear radio ads for books, or see ads in the newspaper, the simple fact is that unless you're an author who's so famous that doing a book tour will be of absolutely zero benefit to your career, you're not sent on book tour. Unless your town has an enterprising bookseller, or an author who is rather zealous in booking himself into bookstores for signings, you'll never see him at a store to sign books. As for radio advertising or print advertising, well, radio almost never happens for genre novels. Print only happens in genre magazines, and then very few of them, and never approaching a saturation point. This isn't a rant against the inefficiencies of publishing. I'll save that for another time. 
While publishers will pay millions of dollars for political memoirs and publicize them very heavily to try and make back that investment, they won't toss five or ten grand into an advertising program to push a book they bought for $3,000, even though it's a really good book and it could break out and it could sell hundreds of thousands of copies. The reasons for this are legion, first among them being that there is no proven roadmap for an advertising campaign that will successfully sell genre titles, so attempts are just not made. Which leaves it to the author to try and pull this stuff together himself. So what sort of publicity work can you as an author do to get your books known to a wider audience? It is a problem for authors on every level, especially in the genres. Heck, I've had folks who like the first two books in the Dragon Crown War series ask me when the other books are going to come out. And those books have been out for a couple of years already. I've had other folks ask me when my next book is coming out. I think they mean cartomancy, but they've never seen or heard of A Secret Atlas or Perchance to Dream. If folks don't know the books are out there, how can they be expected to buy them? They can't. First and foremost, in this day and age, a website is absolutely vital for publicity. This is where you can post shots of the cover, offer snippets of text, and write up essays about the books. For the Dragon Crown War's first book, The Dark Glory War, I wrote up a discussion and question guideline for book discussion groups. I don't know if anyone's ever used them, but folks have looked at the page. Regardless, how much you want to put up about your book on your page is totally up to you, but having a page is vital. When someone comes online to learn about your work, your web page gives them the chance to get the straight skinny. Second, you're listening to what you can do for publicity. You can record sample chapters of your work, or write a related story and read it, or read in the bits that got cut from the novel, or write an essay about the novel, and you can provide that content as a podcast. Before The Grand Crusade and A Secret Atlas came out, I recorded the first chapters into sound files and put them up on my website. People pulled them down and listened, then made a decision to buy the book or not. Some people do worry that if they record their fiction and make it available, that a publisher won't want to touch it because the audio rights have been used. I understand that concern, but it's really not one that should stop you. I've had 38 novels published, and the audio rights have been exercised on 11 of them, all of them set in a universe owned by someone else. None of my original work has ever been recorded, and if you take a look at the selections of audiobooks in stores, you'll see that I'm not alone in terms of genre authors in that regard. Unless you're selling a boatload of books, no publisher picks them up for audio distribution. Even more importantly, however, an author has to do a cost-benefit analysis of what will be lost. Let's say that someone wants to buy the audio rights to a book of yours. We'll put the advance at $1,000. So if you record your book and dole it out to build interest in readership, it could cost you a grand. On the other hand, how much would it cost you for an advertising campaign that reached a thousand people who are interested in what you write and intrigue them enough to buy your books? A lot more than a thousand dollars. Moreover, are you really costing yourself the thousand dollar advance? Nope. You reading the book in is promotion and won't really affect those rights, especially when a publisher is going to hire an actor and a producer and add music and do it all up big time, which they will. Face it, if they think they can make a profit, they're really not going to worry about your promotional podcast. A huge chunk of author-based publicity needs to be approached like a business. I recall authors telling wannabe authors that they needed to create a mailing list and send letters out to readers to let them know when a new book comes out. Great idea until you run the numbers. 37 cents to mail a letter, figure a nickel for the letter in the envelope, so that's 42 cents for a book that'll pay you somewhere between 36 and 48 cents in royalties. 
A better idea, of course, is to maintain a list of bookstores and send that letter out to them since they actually buy in bulk. And if they get your book in, they only make their profit when they sell it. Maintaining email lists certainly is a much less expensive way to approach readers. I don't maintain one myself because I don't want to contribute to the proliferation of spam. I also figure that by making a sound file available for download, I give folks more of an experience of a book than any ad copy will. I pick a portion of the book to read that ends with a hook that'll get people anxious and get them looking forward to the story so they'll run out and buy it when it becomes available. In addition to creating that demand, having given folks something for free creates a sense of obligation on the part of most of them. Even though they don't feel motivated to buy the book immediately, they'll at least look at it or will share the sound file with others. Both of those things are helpful and well worth the investment of time and resources. Other places you can let a lot of folks know that you have a book coming out are the various local newspapers and alumni organizations that are part of your life. A paper in a town where you live now is a great place to reach out since the local boy makes good stories always popular. This also holds true for the paper from the town where you grew up. If you belong to any civic organizations or a large corporation that has a newsletter, let them know. They love promoting someone from the family. This obviously holds true for alumni newsletters, and they're proliferating hugely. I get one from my university, from my high school, from my grade school. With email, sending notices to these outlets won't even cost you a stamp. For genre books, attending local conventions can be a good idea. You approach the folks running the convention through their website or at meetings, and let them know you're a local author and tell them you'd be interested in being involved in programming for the convention. Usually an author will be given a free membership in return for attending panels, doing a reading, doing a signing, and so forth. It's a fair exchange of value and a good way to get known to the local community. One huge word of caution here, however, especially for the beginning author. A number of authors actively plan out a persona that they'll adopt at conventions. I've seen authors decide they'll be bombastic and outspoken. I've seen them choose another author as a target, as if they're a gunslinger who will prove he's the fastest wit in the West. I've seen authors dress up in silly costumes and outrageous hats, or choose some other affectation to make them stand out in a crowd. Well, here's the hot flash. You're an author. That makes you special. That's why you stand out. And if you think about it, that's why you want to stand out. You have a choice. Would you rather be remembered for your questionable fashion sense or for your writing? More importantly, if you affect a persona or define yourself through idiosyncratic dress, is that something you're going to want to maintain for the rest of your professional career? Of course, if that's the way you approach things, that career might be mercifully short. But then what will you do with all the purple paisley pantaloons you had made up? Oh, right, the circus with the rest of the clowns. I'll tell you straight up. The most respected writers I know, the ones who are highly thought of by their peers, are just regular folks. We're enthusiastic about what we do, we're thoughtful when that's called for, funny and fun-loving when that's needed, too. We're kind and considerate and constantly mindful that any remark, any snub, any thoughtlessness or tasteless remark can all be excuses anyone needs to avoid our work like the plague. It doesn't mean we don't have fun, can't sit around and drink and joke with others, or relax and let our hair down. We do, but we also know we're going to be judged by our actions and conduct ourselves accordingly. Quite simply, in selling yourself, you sell your work. And that leads me to the last bit of publicity an author can do, a book signing. 
They come in two types, drive-bys and scheduled signings. Drive-bys are exactly what they sound like. You're at a store, they have some of your books. You walk up to a clerk, introducing yourself as an author, and offer to sign their stock if they want. Usually they'll say sure and get the stickers that you slap on the cover that say it's an autographed book. You sign the books, you chat politely with the help, thank them for letting you sign the books. You get in, you get out, you leave them wondering who was that masked man. A scheduled signing is something you can set up with a local store or a store in a place where you're going to be visiting. You want to time it in conjunction with some related event. That would be the initial publication of the book, its release in mass market, as a mass market paperback, the small size one, or say if it's a novelization of a movie, you time it to be with the release of the film. If you wrote a Revolutionary War novel, you might have a signing near the 4th of July, and so on. The event tie-in gives local papers more of a reason to cover your signing. There's a trick to signings, and it's simply this. You, the author, should expect to sell one, maybe two books while you're in the store. If you expect more, and worse yet, act like a prima donna and throw a tantrum about the lack of publicity for the signing, the store staff will consider you to be an ass, which you are and they will tell everyone else you're an ass, which you are. Then they'll go so far as to advise readers not to buy your book because you're an ass, which you are. So, go. Be in good spirits, be upbeat. Chat with folks, answer questions, be helpful. Heck, I've learned, always learn where the, where the bathrooms are in the store so I can point them out to folks because someone will always ask. At one signing, I even faced the store's directory, so when someone asked directions, I could look past them, read the directory, and point them to the appropriate section of the store. A lot of buyers just don't expect to see authors in the store. That's just the way it is. If you smile and are happy, the store staff will think well of you and will actively push your books after you're gone. One last thing. At the end of a signing, you can ask the staff if they want you to sign their stock. Signed books sell even if you're not there, which is why drive-by signings are a good thing. If the staff asks you how many you want to sign, you just tell them, you bring them, I'll sign them. Sometimes they'll get you to sign all the stocks, sometimes just a half a dozen. Doesn't matter. Be helpful, be positive, and they'll tell everyone they know what a good sport you were. And that sort of advertising you can't buy. If you let it, the business of writing will drive you nuts. You just have to bear two things in mind. First is to be confident in your ability to write and the fact that you will be getting better and better by working at it. The second is that you have to sell yourself and sell your work. So develop a big smile, a friendly manner, and keep looking for new ways to let folks know they want to be reading your work. Do your best, and they will keep coming back. This is Michael A. Stackpole for The Secrets. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to visit www.stormwolf.com to get your sample issues of The Secrets. You can also find out more about my latest book, Perchance to Dream by clicking on its cover there on the website's homepage. This podcast also has a discussion forum at www.tsfpn.com. Please feel free to come over there and ask questions and participate in the discussion about writing. Not sure what the next podcast will cover. I seem to say that a lot these days. If you jump in the discussion on the forums, you're likely to be someone who can decide what I will actually talk about next time. This podcast is copyright 2005 by Michael A. Stackpole. I'll be back in a week or so with more about writing and playing with words and all that good stuff. Until then, good luck with your writing.